0: Good morning. You guys enjoying your weather? I didn't. I was inside all day yesterday for a class. I was a little sad. But it was nice. <clears throat> I'm glad the weather's turning. I'm either getting old or it's just because I'm a homeowner, um, or hopefully going to be one day. Uh, but I'm beginning to like spring more and more. I usually don't like warm weather, I've always been a winter guy. But, uh, this is the second year in a row now that I'm tired of, of cold. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here today, and thank you for the opportunity to be able to bring the word to you. Uh, Matt, as you know, was uh, away this week uh, for his uh, hopefully annual praying plan. Um, kind of a time for him to get away to uh, garner both some vision for his family uh, and for our church. Uh incredibly valuable to us as a body. Uh, the overall vision of the church is uh, really the primary way and only way, I suppose, that I submit to Matt um as an as a co-elder he is a leader among equals and in this way uh, he leads us well and it's important for him to lead his family well for us too uh, it has a direct impact on the way that he leads our body uh, so i thank you for uh, letting him get away and and get some time alone i hope you were active in praying for him um, but uh, i thank you for the opportunity to be able to bring the word i tend to get pretty cool passages when he uh, doesn't let me preach. I don't know why he keeps giving me the good ones, um, but I like this one, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna rock it. So I hope that you have been kind of following along the past two weeks because we have been really laying a groundwork for the second half of Ephesians. We have moved through the first three chapters of kind of gaining a lot of understanding and foundational uh, laying, if you will, of a uh, of a theology that helps us understand a, really what's going on in this new thing called the church, Um, particularly as it relates to uh, the uniting of Jews and Gentiles together. And so we have really not been dealing with a whole lot of grand themes other than just a few. It's just that Paul keeps exploring them in different and unique ways. And so today we are going to continue on and actually consume more than half a verse. Uh, So I hope you're excited. We're going up to a verse and a half. Uh, Really, all of 2 and 3, but kind of moving on from 2A. uh, We'll be kind of traipsing through here. Uh, I imagine we'll pick up speed a little bit more as we get farther into chapter 4. But uh, right now, things are are tight as we continue to kind of set up a good foundation for where we're beginning. So, last night, um, I was able to hang out with Adam and Deanna. Um, You can make faces if you want and and look at them. It would be cute. I'm just kidding. Don't do that make it feel awkward. Um, I just made it, so we're good. Uh, we're talking with them, and we were talking about stories. We we're talking primarily, really, about, about games and how long it's been since I've been able to uh, play some of the video games I like, as of, you know, life and kids and such. Um, but we were talking about games, and, you know, I, I like games that have stories. I like stories a lot. Um, I love stories, in fact, and we were talking about this last night. I like games that kind of bring you along on a journey. I, that's, that's why I love books. That's why I like drawing even, because it's it's about characters, and characters have stories and backgrounds, and it can be robust or it can be kind of flat, but people have stories, right? And I love Scripture largely for that same reason. I mean, it's full of stories as it shows characters and develops characters and themes and, and shows you these grand awesome narratives. And it's I mean, even why I like history. Uh, history is, is awesome to me because of stories. I like the people. I like the places. I like knowing what events happen. It's not dates for me, which is what I hear most people complain about with history. I don't, I don't do dates either. I know like centuries, kind of. Um, it's not it. I like the progression. I like the story of history. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but history is actually stories about real people uh, as opposed to, you know, video games and, you know, like Harry Potter. Uh, History is is about, like, real people. It's it's really interesting. I I wish more of you would read it. Uh, How many of you like history? Okay, half. That's not bad. That's better than I thought. Well, good. And you guys can kind of relate with me. You like stories, too, right? Uh, He was talking to me about other games like Candy Crush. (laughs) Candy Crush is not a story. And I would argue maybe that it's not even a game, all right? Um, Apparently, Candy Crush has something like 1,500 levels. All I know is that it took him like 30 seconds to keep scrolling to the top of the path to show me where the game ended. He's scrolling forever. And friends, that's not a game. That's called purgatory. <laughs> uh, allow me to be, to be frank. That there are millions of Catholics in purgatory right now playing Candy Crush until they get to level 1500. And at that point, they will be allowed to enter on into glory. That's not a story, all right? That's awful. But as Adam admitted, it passes the time, and I argue so does reading, eating, and sleeping. So that's not really a good reason. <laughs> I just, I like stories. I keep them with me. There's something that, that travel with me. I remember them. I draw, you know, lessons from them. I find wisdom in them. I, I like stories. They, they continue on with you. Whereas I don't know if you remember what happened in level 45 of Candy Crush, right? No one does. It doesn't matter. Stories have impacts on people, right? Allow me to tell you a story. I'm going to introduce you to a young boy. He's nine years old. His name is Chuck. Chuck loved to play football. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep this kind of neutral for those of you. I tend to rely on a few individual themes and in, in relating applications, so we'll call it sports ball, all right? <laughs> he was mighty good at it. He took his sports ball from his room and went outside to play sports with his friends. He sportsed really hard and really well, and all of his friends Loved him. In fact, they got the most points in sports ball and won. Chuck was the man. Is that a good story? No? Come on, guys. I've been working on these, I'm planning on writing the great American novel about Chuck. It's a play on Charlie Brown, except he's good at sports ball. No? Okay. Let me tell another story. Chuck was a nine-year-old boy. His parents still treated him like a child if his dad was even around at all. He wanted to be a grown-up. He was trying really hard. He tried to bring on responsibility in his life. But Chuck was mediocre at sports ball. He sometimes didn't even get picked to play sports ball with his friends, and he had to watch from the sidelines and or dugout. One day, Chuck was going to play sports ball with his friends, and he was excited because he had a shiny new sports ball that he was able to save up his allowance for. And when his friends arrived to play, he ran up to his room to get the sports ball. But where did it go? He couldn't find it. So today, what, was that a good story? Some, what? You, you want to know the end, right? Okay. Well, the end um, is kind of the problem here, right? You see, this story is different because it has conflict. It has tension. Right? There's things that aren't always going well. I mean, it could end up really terribly, right? His older brother took the sports ball for himself so he could go sports with his sporting friends. Chuck's friends were angry because they couldn't sports. Chuck was never picked for a team again. He failed school and lived a horrible life collecting stamps or something else, not offensive if you like stamps. (laughs) Is that a good story? Mm. (laughs) You see, the problem, I think, for us is that we like conflict, right? We thrive in tension, I mean, what is Star Wars? What is Indiana Jones? What is uh, The Hobbit? What is Lord of the Rings? What are all these great stories that we know if they don't really have any conflict? Then you're just the Hobbit in the Shire doing life, right? And that's what they tend to like, but that's no adventure at all, right? That's no real story. We like conflict. We like tension. Men, we're problem solvers. Ladies, you're drama queens. We can be in the middle of the mountains of peaceful, serene Tennessee and— still in perfect serenity, want to have a fish struggling on the line, right? Or watching a bear maul a deer or whatever bears do. We like fights. I mean, when you think about our fight or flight response, one half of that is what? Fighting. The other half is flight. We just like a good chase. That's tension, right? We, it is innate in who we are to like conflict, to like tension. There's something about it that we like. But the problem is, is that when it comes to the church, conflict never creates unity. You know, it may feel like it does sometimes when we talk about things like the Olympics, right? They're coming up here this year. We have USA, USA, right? We're all rallied around this. USA, Russia stinks, right? Well, what happens if the USA and Russia are supposed to be united? Now what? The conflict doesn't create unity it can't it cannot create unity and so in our case particularly with our text we're looking at two different nations right the jews and then everyone else in the world the nations literally the gentiles they're supposed to be unified now in fact the dividing wall of hostility is gone there's nothing that should be separating these two groups of people And beyond that for us there's there's even supposed to be only one new race It's not even the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and all the nations. It's supposed to be one new race of people and even further into one new man, right? The second Adam, Jesus, and particularly one body. And so for us, we need to understand that conflict does not aid towards unity. Conflict is actually the absence of unity. And that sounds really basic, but it's incredibly fundamental to what we deal with as the church. The problem is that we have a predisposition to conflict. I think most of us would say that we don't like conflict. We would say, I'm non-confrontational. I don't like conflict. I don't mind some competition, but that's not really conflict. I mean, we don't hate each other. We're not going at it, right? But I think the problem is that our actions betray us when we say that. Because Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, The mouth speaks, and I can typically tell what a person is about by what they talk about, by what things that they say, and I'm relatively fairly accurate at it. (laughs) Sometimes, though, it's not what they say; it's what they don't say. All right. Out of the overflow of the heart, we see what people are about, and that's a reflection that I have to do in my own life quite often. What, What am I talking about to people? What is what is most concerning to me? What do I not talk about? Who am I, and what am I about? Because I think our words betray us, they show what's in our heart, our actions betray us, because we like automatically resort to behavior that shows that we like conflict. It invites conflict into our lives, and consequently, when we invite conflict into our own lives, it invites it into the church. And so the first thing that I want us to see today, and understanding how our actions betray us, is that we have to recognize our idolatry. We have to recognize our idolatry. And you would say, idolatry to what? You're talking about conflict. Paul Tripp says that we are too easily captivated by our own self-centered little worlds. It's kind of a play on the C.S. Lewis quote, right, of mud pies. And what he's drawing from that is essentially this. We're captivated by mud pies. And we are too easily captivated by our own self-centered worlds. And James chapter 4, verse 1 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Just spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The reason I know that we like conflict, even if we say that we don't, the reason I know we like tension, even if we say and profess that we don't, is because of this. Verse 4, you adulterous. I want you to, if you write in your Bibles, write idolatrous. When he says, you adulterous people, he's calling us idolaters. He's saying, you idolatrous people. We need to remember that we are married to Jesus, right? We are the bride of the groom. And so when he calls us adulterous, he's, he's referring to that marriage union between the church and Jesus. And we think back to the Old Testament with Hosea, right? How was is Israel depicted in the story of Hosea? as Gomer, the adulterous wife, right? When we flee from our former love and we go on to pursue our passions, we are idolatrous people because who are we serving? In verse one and two, you serve yourselves. Your passions are at war within you. I mean, this passage starts with a warning against self-indulgence because I think we all know that sin causes us to be more committed to ourselves than to anyone else, right? Right? You see, we walk through this life saying that we don't like conflict. We walk through this life saying that we love each other. Yet our actions and our words betray us because we actually like conflict. Otherwise, we would not seek it. And the primary way that we seek conflict is by seeking our own good. By seeking and building our own kingdoms, we are setting ourselves up for war against other kingdoms. And primarily, we're going to be setting ourselves up for war against each other's kingdoms. And ultimately, we're setting ourselves up for war against God's kingdom. And so we may say that we don't like conflict, but all of our actions are about building up our own lives and building up our own kingdom. And then we find ourselves at war, at conflict with the kingdom of God. You see, sin causes us to be more concerned about our own welfare than anyone else's. When we are idolatrous people, when we are worshiping ourselves... We are not concerned about other people's welfare, and such self-centeredness destroys relationships, and it does great, great harm. Tripp talks about in his parenting classes and and other things that uh, he has written that we are revelation receivers, we are interpreters, and we are worshipers, right? Particularly, we're used to that idea in the context of our children and parenting. We've been talking about that for the past couple of years. But the idea is that we are revelation receivers. We receive input from this world, right? And we interpret it. We talked about that in the hermeneutics class. So we are interpreting life all the time, and it causes us to assign value as we worship, right? And one of our identities as a church, as, as renovation, is worshipers, right? We are worshipers. It's what we do. The problem is, is that when we interpret life, often we take all of this information and interpret it for What? Our own good. Our own value. So it serves us. And so then ultimately what do we worship? Us. We worship ourselves. I believe that a war for the heart of Christianity is raging all around us. I think it's seeking to draw us away from its true core and towards the externals. Because here, here's, here's the problem. We've got to recognize that this is a reality in our lives. That we like and invite conflict into our lives and it goes so deep that not are we at war with god's kingdom and each other's kingdoms but we're at war with ourselves we are at war with ourselves romans chapter 7 you know you're all familiar with this but the ultimate kind of summary is that when i want to do good what does paul say evil is right there with me even when i want to do good Even when I want to be concerned about the welfare of others, evil is right there with me. Sin and disunity is present in our own members. From one arm to the other, from one leg to the other, it is present in ourselves. And so how in the world, if there is sin present in our members, how in the world do we seek unity in our members? Our war, our, our delight even in conflict goes from the kingdom of God to man's kingdom, the horizontal, to inside of ourselves. It's an ugly picture, but it's the reality of who we are. When we talk about total depravity, this is what we're talking about. We're not capable of doing anything good, anything good, apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, we are Romans 7 When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Fortunately, Scripture is not silent on giving us hope in dealing with this conflict. In fact, it gives us actually like a a story, shocking, a story explaining how conflict can be resolved. Certainly we have imperatives, and we're going to deal with some of those later, of you know, considering others better than yourselves and those type things. But we actually get to see this play out in the early church in Acts 15. If you remember in our New Testament survey class, if you attended there, or if you're just familiar with the story of Scripture, Acts 15 is really a turning point. It's short of Acts 11 and 12. It's a real turning point in the New Testament church, right? It's the Jerusalem Council is what we typically call it. And when we look at Acts 15, we get to see a huge picture of unity and deference, And trying to allow unity to be a part of this new body. You see, briefly, to recount the story, we we have Gentiles getting saved, right? Cornelius' household got saved. The Ethiopian eunuch is saved. And these people are exhibiting signs of conversion, right? They have the Holy Spirit in them. There's no doubt that these people now belong to God. And so the question is, do they need to become Jews? Do they need to observe the table laws? Do they need to go through a certain procedure? Do they have to do that in order to be saved? And to us, it sounds silly, but think about the transition that they're coming out of, right? Coming out of everything in the Old Testament, where certainly Gentiles, people from the nations, were able to be saved in the Old Testament, but what had to happen? They observed the Jewish faith. They observed temple worship, table laws, right? They're called proselytes. They were saved, but they were Jews, kind of, right? So, what's the question now? What do we do with the Gentiles? And, and what's happening is the apostles are actually trying to practice Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is, is what we talk about in church discipline, right? And it has that negative connotation. And we try to redeem it for its proper usage here, and that we do Matthew 18 all the time, right? Informal discipline, right? It's specifically trying to push for restoration. And so the apostles are trying to kind of work through this theological quagmire and figure out exactly what we're supposed to require of the Gentiles. It's not a question of can they be saved, it's what do they do once they are. What's required of them? And so they try to work through this Matthew 18 process and they go into this council together to seek wisdom from each other. And they work through this and ultimately they come down to the point of this. We are not going to put the yoke of the law on the Gentile We're not going to require the Gentile converts to become Jews, right? We're not going to put the yoke of the law on them. Now, what's interesting is they don't just leave it at that. And that's typically, I think, where we leave it, right? We're like, okay, yeah, so we don't have to. Awesome. Let's move on. But there's a significant piece under there that we typically skip over. I always typically skip over until I really look at this passage. And what's interesting is after he says, we're not going to put the yoke of the law on the Gentiles, he says this, but we are going to ask them to observe a few things. In fact, they do ask that the Gentiles abstain from fornication. That's kind of a given. They abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, less clear. They abstain from blood, uh, drinking, eating blood. And they abstain from uh, some of the food law issues with Jews at the table. So there's four kind of things that they're asking them to make you know, some submissions on. We're not going to put the law on you. It's not required for you to practice your faith. It's not required for you in this thing called Christianity that's beginning in Antioch. It's not that. We're just asking you to make some concessions. And Paul describes this later as what? Being sensitive to our weaker brothers, right? He describes it later by saying, really, that when issues are not black and white, and maybe they are for you, but they're not for another believer then you need to be sensitive to the sensibilities of those other believers. You want to be kind to the weaker vessel. We don't want to flaunt our liberties in front of each other, right? And so this does two awesome things for the early church in Acts 15. It allows them to reach Jews. It allows Gentiles to reach Jews. It allows Jews to reach Jews because we're not offending them in some of the most basic ways possible. And the second way is that it smooths the way for fellowship, Now Jews and Gentiles can eat at the same table and Peter doesn't have to freak out about whether or not he's being seen eating with his buddies. It smooths the way for fellowship. And so we see a beautiful picture in Acts 15 play out of conflict listening to each other, working out resolution in in conjunction with God's word, and then seeking the good of others in in the resolution. As you simply defer your liberties to another. And so Paul Tripp has a, a long quote that I want to read. It should be on the screen for you. It says this Each of us has been gifted, called, and positioned to do our part in God's kingdom work. Our histories, personalities, abilities, and maturity levels differ, which is how the Redeemer intends it. He is sovereign over it all, but most of the time we are oblivious to this. We are too easily captivated by our own self centered little worlds. But Ephesians 4 propels us beyond a life consumed by personal happiness and achievement. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and something that will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. And I would add at the end of that, if you can get over yourself. We're our own stumbling block. We can't blame it on anything else. We can't blame it on the heat of life and the circumstances that it brings. We can't blame it on other people. We have our own roots and we respond... Situations based off of who we are, not what other people are. It certainly influences us, but it does not dictate our response. We are our own worst stumbling block. We have to understand that we are idolatrous people. Matt talked last week and even two weeks ago about having a proper self assessment. This is the proper self-assessment. If you have not gotten it over the past two weeks, this is the proper self-assessment. We are idolatrous people. Calvin says that the heart is a factory of idols. And even so, we worship our own heart first. So let's look at our text, as Paul kind of alluded to. First thing I want you to see today is this. Unity comes, or second thing rather. Unity comes by laying down our rights. Unity comes by laying down our rights. If we realize that we are idolatrous people, and how do we overcome that? Let's look at our text today. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you we're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So unity comes by laying down our rights. So we're looking specifically at verses 2 and 3 today. And what we want to do is look at these four kind of descriptor words or phrases that modify us or or really just show us how to walk in a manner worthy so we're going back to two weeks ago and matt was talking about how we need to walk worthily right each of these phrases that we're dealing with today modify or talk about or show us how to do that walking and so we can look at them individually and just walk through these real quickly i'm going to spend just a small time on humility because uh we had that last week of course but humility and gentleness is the first one right Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. This is, as he said last week, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I think that's a fantastic definition of these two together. The lowly are those who have no resources of their own, and so they need to learn to lean on the Lord for help, right? When we find that we are bereft of resources, when we have nothing When we realize that we are idolatrous people that have nothing to offer, then what? We must lean on our bridegroom, right? Gomer came to the marriage with Hosea with nothing. Nothing. She was bought out of slavery. And the moment that they said, I do, everything that was his is now hers. All the rights, all the status, all the material goods, everything is now hers. Because when we come to Christ, when we say, I do, for lack of better words, everything that He has, everything that He is, all of His status, all of His material goods, it's all ours. We bring nothing to the table. That's what humility is about. It's understanding that we don't bring anything to the table. And we lean on the one that gives us strength. We consider ourselves weak and he is strong this is just simply considering others better than yourself when we deal with our relationship to each other and my question I, th- I think I really want to spend time on with humility rather than re-explain it because we have last week is this Is are you more humble this week than last week if you're not applying the truths proclaimed from this pulpit each week I think that we are functional I say we because I'm typically not up here I think that we are functionally saying, I don't need these. I'm fine as I am. And that is pride to the highest degree. For us to sit in here and have the truth of God's word (coughs) given to us and to not do anything with it is functionally saying what? That was pretty, but I don't really need it. In the world of a smartphone, we will all walk up to a beautiful sunset, to a beautiful mountain view, and what will we almost all do? Selfie, right? No, we'll we'll take ourselves out of it. We'll just take a picture, right? Brian got to see John Calvin's church, and he went to Paris, and what did he do? He took pictures. he take this with me. This is valuable. This is beautiful. You don't just observe it and walk away. We don't do that. That's, That's not who we are as humans. And we come in here and we see the beautiful truths of God's Scripture, and what do we do? I don't want you to take pictures of me. Don't do that. All right. What do we do with our Bible? We we ignore it functionally, right? I mean, we get a little bit of application in home gathering, but. Here's the, here's my concern, and this is why I'm bringing this up. Is Hebrews 10:26? We talked about this back in Christmas. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I guess you may be taking the first step of falling away today. Hebrews 3:12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have got to be more humble this week than we were last week and more unified next week than we are this week and have a better understanding of God and His mission The following week, as we work through Ephesians, it's got to affect our lives. So humility will push us to consider others better than ourselves. Humility will push us to pursue holiness because of the good that it does to the community of faith. Humility will cause us to live in the rhythm of repentance and faith. Recognizing that we have no resources of our own. We are lowly. We have nothing. Everything that we have is because of Jesus. And so, if we will walk worthy according to the calling that we've been called, we will walk in humility and gentleness. But we will also walk in patience. Patience can be defined here as typically as persistence in one's convictions even when circumstances make this difficult. And it's typically linked to the word faithfulness. We typically see them kind of together or sometimes used interchangeably. But its context here is a little bit different. It's not just simply persistence when it's difficult, when the heat of life makes things difficult. Its context here, particularly between humility and gentleness on one hand, and then bearing with one another on the other hand that we're going to see next, it shows that it's kind of the idea of being able to bear up under provocation, so it's not just when life gets difficult, it's when people get difficult. Patience or forbearance and faithfulness in our convictions while we bear up under, what, provocation from another. You see, long-suffering that makes allowance for other people's shortcomings and endures wrong rather than flying into a fit of rage or off the handle and, and, and desiring vengeance should be our, our aim. When we talk about patience, it's got to be about making allowance for other people's shortcomings. For other people's doing us wrong, even, we be patient through that. I mean, when we talk about our identity as a family, family should get this, right? Family should understand patience and long-suffering in relationship. I mean, you talk about patience through conflict. If that's not Thanksgiving, then I don't know what it is. Family should understand that. Now, I I think about me and my brother's relationship, and we had tough times, particularly tough times growing up. We had a lot of shared interests, but we also had a lot of shared interests that created conflict, right? We had a lot of sin on both of our parts, particularly as we moved up into middle school, high school, and, and college. And we had some hard conversations. We even have hard conversations now, particularly with him pursuing eldership as well. I mean, iron sharpening iron is not a cuddly thing. I think we talk about it in the, ex- the exciting aspect of, yeah, we're getting sharp, and It's bro time, and that's how we, you know, it's not cuddly. It's sharp, right, for a reason. It's abrasive. It's grating. As one gets sharper, as both get sharper. But despite all of past good, bad, everything, I know that he loves me. I know that he loves me. I know that he cares for me. I know that he's sacrificed for me. And I know that he'll particularly, that he'll be there. That's one of the most important things is that he'll simply be there. You see, if there were to be broken fellowship between us from sin, it would be absolutely catastrophic. And it would go much farther than beyond just me and him. It would implode a great portion of our church if it was due to sin. He's not back here just looking pretty. He works hard. He works hard here in the morning before you guys get here. He gives up Thursday nights so that he can do practice. And so typically on, depending on which night it is, he's doing discipleship, whether with us or with other people in the congregation. He does, he does a lot. And that's that's just him. We're not even talking about the family unit, right? And then we talk about his relationship with me up here. I'm not looking pretty. I'm hitting things. All right. We do say so. it's going to bring tension, it's going to bring conflict, it's going to implode a portion of our church. He's our home gathering director, he leads a home gathering. I'm the elder over him when he's home gathering directing, and I'm a home gathering leader, who will be, right? It causes catastrophic problems that go just beyond our relationship because then you bring that aspect in, and then what does family gatherings look like for us at Thanksgiving? What does Christmas look like with my parents? really our whole life trajectory changes off of one relationship. Granted, this is a family relationship, but these are family relationships. My relationship to you is a family relationship. And when there's catastrophic implosion of relational damage happening there, it changes trajectory. If you guys have been here for about two years, you felt that. You felt that. It was catastrophic damage done from one relationship. It's happened a couple times. We should understand the weight of that. Families should understand patience. It's what we do. Church, we need to understand that we're a family. And we're not just a family trying to be family. That has a lot of shortfalls. If we put some teeth to that, We're a family of servants. We're a family serving each other. We're a family of servants learning about God. We're learners. We're a family of servants that know God and we worship Him. We're a family of servants that know God and we seek to bring others into worship of God. That is a robust identity. Renovation, that's who you are. That's who you are in Christ. So stop fighting. Stop grumbling about each other. Stop muttering or complaining. Just be patient. Be patient with each other. I mean, if you want to sign up to be Ananias or Sapphira, we'll put it on the city, okay? Because one sin for them, what? Did what? It's over. Lying to the elders, the apostles in that case, causing disunity, ended their life. God is patient with us. Each one of us have done something to disrupt church unity. God has spared us. But if you want to hold that standard over other people, then read Acts 5. God is patient with us, and praise God he is. So let's just chill out, all right? Let's be patient with each other. You see, because of God's patience and forbearance with us, we are expected to act similarly to others. You think about the example of the wicked servant, right? That Jesus talked about in the Gospels. You have a guy who is forgiven of an impossible student loan debt. He can't pay it back. I'm assuming it's student loan. It's the only weight that I know of. Um, impossible debt he's forgiven of. And what does he do? He goes out into the street and he shakes down his buddy for the money that he owes him for a cheeseburger. That's not patience. And so what happens? He's thrown back in jail and has to pay off the entire amount, and he'll never pay it off. It is literally impossible for him to pay off that amount of money. Jesus tells us that we have been forgiven of much, and so we must forgive others of much. So I think some questions that we've got to pull from this idea of patience is this. Why is it so hard for us to stop sticking up for ourselves? Why do we always have to stick up for ourselves? Why do we always have to assert our rights? I mean, do you trust Jesus to defend you? Do you trust Jesus to defend you? Because I think that will change things for us. When you are put in a position that Jesus is the only one who can defend you, then you begin to see that I can't really fight for my rights to party or otherwise, right? We can't. We can't fight for anything. We've got nothing. We have no power. If we're humble and lowly and we bring nothing to the table, then there A, there's nothing to defend, and B, we have no power to enable it. When we trust God to defend ourselves, then we begin to say, you know what? You have, a, you have stepped on my rights. You've even maybe offended me or wronged me. That's okay. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. I've offended God before in, in ways that are way beyond what you've done to me. I'll be patient, and, and I'll just I'll trust God on this. This is not that big of a deal. My question is, have, have you been put in a situation yet where you can't defend yourself? <coughs> you see, we don't have to stick up for ourselves. God's got our back. Why? Because we're his kids. If someone goes and, like, hits Adeline, you're dead, all right? Why? Daddy bear. Me, right? God, the Father, takes care of his children. You don't have to fight. You don't have to defend your rights. You don't have to get vengeance when someone wrongs you. And seriously, how often do you do things to other people with the intention of wronging them? Not often, right? It's not typically your MO. It's usually an accident. You didn't mean to offend them. If you like stamp collecting, I'm sorry. Right? I, I wasn't trying I wasn't saying, I know this person does, and I'm gonna eh. I only do that with Adam in Michigan, okay? That's it. I'm not seeking to wrong people. But what happens when someone wrongs me? What am I assuming? They plan that. If I go to their house right now, there are going to be clippings of me at the grocery store. There's going to be strings tying me together, and they're going to say, this is his button, and they're going to push it, right? That's how I process things. That's how I process things when I'm driving and people pull in front of me. And you know I have a family full of kids in here and you're trying to run me off the road. That's how I feel when I pull out in front of other people, right? I'm saying, there's a family in there, and I'm going to make them hit his brakes. Ready? No, that's not how we act. That's not how we operate. So why do we get so offended when people harm us? Because we're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping our own kingdoms. We should not by default think that people are trying to hurt us. We should by default think that people are trying to serve God, and we got on the way. Because often our heart is what gets in the way. Let's look at another one. It kind of stresses us even further. Bearing with one another in love. We're going to walk in a worthy, uh, worthy manner according to the calling we've been called, and we need to be bearing with one another in love. And Typically, this is defined as to put up with something annoying or harmful. And We've kind of talked about some of the annoying aspect already. Let's talk about the harmful piece. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 1.4, this is Paul talking to the Thessalonians, and he says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you. We're excited. We talk about the fact That you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all love, what? Your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Bearing with one another in love. Putting up with something annoying or harmful. He is saying it is good and we boast in the fact that you are suffering and that you are afflicted and that you are persecuted. Why? Because it's for the glory of God. If we want to bear with love, then we understand that even when it's harmful to us, we bear it. Annoying is easy when compared to harmful, right? It's one thing for a guy to pull out in front of me. It's another thing for him to hit me. Now all of a sudden, annoying doesn't even look that bad, right? And we kind of see how silly it is. But listen to this. It's not just that we endure. It's not just a grudging tolerance or a grin and bear it mindset. When we see the words in love, what if he just said bearing with one another? That would kind of give us license to just, eh. Again, every Sunday this guy, uh, I'll bear it. That's okay. I'm not going to get him. I'm not going to exact my holy vengeance on him. I'll just bear with it. No, in love shows that a grudging tolerance is not what Paul had in mind. You look at Colossians 3, 12-13. This is kind of the other pairing passage of this one in Ephesians. It's basically kind of the same thing, but with a little bit different focus. He says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must Forgive. You're not the only one putting up with junk, guys. Jesus is, and he still, he did on the cross, and he still is even today. And so let's face it. We're sinners, living with sinners, and so there's never a day when forgiveness isn't needed. There's never a day in the life of the community of believers where forgiveness is not needed. Hey, listen. Listen. The refusal to forgive or the temptation, I think this one typically happens, the temptation to replay an offense in our minds and our thoughts of punishment and revenge and all the damage that the relationships are sustaining, God wants to use these things to make us more like him. Instead of replaying this or refusing to forgive or getting bitter or hard-hearted, God wants to use these opportunities of conflict, of annoyance, of even affliction to do what? To make us more like him. What is the will of God for us to be made like His son? So he wants to use these things in his will to make us more like his son. These are, as Paul Tripp would say, workrooms for his grace. Every time that we are offended or our rights are trampled on or we're hurt, these are workrooms for God's grace in our life. He says this, in this important area of forgiveness, there's two things. One, the cross causes me to want others to know the same forgiveness that Christ purchased for me. In forgiveness, the cross causes me to want others to know the same forgiveness that Christ purchased for me. When people wrong me, I remember that I offended God. I wronged God first and foremost. And I want them to know that God has forgiven me of that. And I can show them that by my forgiveness of them. Two, it changes me and enables me to genuinely forgive others. It's an operative word there, genuinely forgive others. So when it comes to walking in a worthy manner together in this idea of unity that we're actually going to be getting to in just a minute, we need to to hear this. The mutual forbearance is the practical expression of patience. When we are mutually forbearing with each other, that is the practical expression. The, the nuts and bolts of expressing patience. And so as believers, we have to bear with one another's weaknesses. We have to bear together with one another's failures in the midst of tensions or conflicts. It shows a lifestyle that is consistent with our worthy walking and our calling we enjoy doing the spiritual gifts class, right? It's, it's fun to kind of walk through there and you see bits and pieces of personality and stuff. But we talk about what we're strong in often, right? We typically in that class and even afterwards don't talk about what we're weak in. You ever think about the liability that you are for the lack of strength that you have in certain spiritual gifts? We don't talk about it that way, do we? And there's good reason. But think about it. If you're terrible at administration, have you ever thought about the liability you are to your home gathering and to the church for your lack of organization how people have to make up for you? If you're not merciful, have you thought about the liability you are to your home gathering, to your family, to the church, the fact that you're not a merciful person? If you're not a teacher, have you thought about the liability that you are to your family, to your home gathering, to the church, and the fact that you don't like Rusty's Lists? among other things. We don't think of it that way. Why? Because we're supposed to be weak. It's okay to be weak. In our weakness, He is made strong. How is He made strong? We live in community with each other. My weakness in certain places is made up for. It's not a liability. It's made up for and other people who are gifted at it. And in fact, it makes it that much more beautiful because we're not all amazing at everything. We enjoy interaction with each other. This goes from gifting all the way to the other side of simply just personality. Personality. The church is not supposed to be full of people that you like, it's, it's not. There are probably people here that you haven't talked to in a long time. It's not good. There are people here that you probably don't want to spend a lot of Friday nights with. That's okay. Kind of. Because it's not supposed to be made up of people that we are like, that guy's my bro for life. Right? It's not supposed to be that. It's not supposed to only be that. What is supposed to allow us to connect? The grace of God. You see, this type of patient behavior, this type of particularly bearing with one another in love, this type of behavior can only come from God's love and grace. It's the only way it happens. In 317, just a chapter ago, he says that he prays that we would be rooted and established in love. And now, in chapter 4, he's saying, act accordingly. You are rooted and established in love. Act like it. And so, we walk in humility and gentleness, not viewing ourselves as the most important person in the room. We walk in patience. We're long-suffering with each other. We walk in love, bearing one another's burdens, bearing one another's faults, bearing one another's giftings, bearing everything in love, not grudgingly, in love. And finally, he says this, in order to walk in Worthy, the whole point of his walking is this, to be eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's climactic. It's the goal towards which the other phrases have been moving. And, and even more so, setting us up for next week, is a bridge really into the next paragraph. Being eager to keep the unity of the Spirit. We've already seen humility, gentleness, and patience. has shown us that he's concerned about relationships, right? Now, those type of character qualities are, are typically relational Character qualities, right? And then bearing with one another in love expresses even more specifically that attitude that this is about relationships. Still now, he becomes even more specific. They are to maintain energetically that unity. They are to maintain energetically that unity that the Spirit has given them despite their differences with one another. And so unity, another word for us to understand this, and we're going to kind of use these interchangeably and probably even more so in the next couple of weeks, is oneness. Think about unity, we want to think about oneness. This is a theme that's going to be picked up even in this next section or verse. In fact, it's going to be used six times in the space of 34 words. I don't know how small he's going to break up these next couple of sections. There's 34 words and six of them are one. Where the unity of the church is foundational in the midst of diversity, of gifts, of people, of nations, of languages, of cultures. Unity of the church is foundational for the remaining part of Ephesians. Let's talk about unity. Paul seems to envision that the unity of the church is kind of complex. And to a degree it is. When we think of unity, we think of oneness, we need to think of it in kind of two two levels. One level is that the church already possesses unity. This is something that we already have, right? And that's why he can use the word maintain, not necessarily go and and create. We already have unity at one level because God's Spirit has already accomplished it when Christ tore down the barriers that divided, giving peace among men and peace with God. We have peace horizontally, we have peace vertically, we are united in Christ as one, right? So it's already happened, on one level, but on another level, the church must maintain that unity. And, and catch this: it must be zealous about it. We can't just maintain it and be like, "All right, who's who's going to take care of the unity this week? Will someone bring your wrenches and tweak some stuff. Let's let's keep this going. It's an engine that needs to run so that you know we're a church. No, we're eager about it. We are zealous about maintaining unity. See, unity is kept by the bond of peace." It's kept by the bond of peace. When you look at this word peace, it's literally the fastener. It's like a button or a zipper that holds together a garment. Peace is the fastener that preserves church unity. When we talk about peace with each other and unity, peace is that thing that brings about unity. So when we talk at the beginning of the sermon about conflict and liking tension, that's not peace. That is Unity, it unfastens, it takes apart. Peace brings about unity. It must be energetically, he says, eager, worked out in practical ways. It's got to be done in practical ways. It's not some esoteric idea of world peace, right? That type of thing. That's not what we're talking about. It is a very practical thing that we work out. It's like this, such as lovingly putting up with one another's, you know, weird things, inconsistencies, right? One of the commentators I have uses the word foibles. I kind of like that one, right? (laughs) Putting up with each other's foibles, being polite and gentle under provocation, and being humble. When somebody here provokes you, or you think that they're after you, or they're out to get you, or push your buttons, chill. Chill calm down. They probably didn't mean to hurt you. I almost promise, okay? Calm down. Be polite and gentle to each other. And and here's the thing. I think, primarily for us, we have a good amount of unity in our church. And and I, I don't want to be naive. I do think our size helps with that, okay? But it is something that we maintain. It's something that we maintain through church discipline, it's something that we maintain through careful discipleship and shepherding. And it's something that you guys do. It's not because of Matt and I. It's not even necessarily because of your home gathering leaders. We're, we're leaders in that. But you guys maintain unity. And I think we have a great deal of it here. I, I do think that we struggle sometimes with cliques. I think that we can be better at caring for each other, which we're going to talk about in a second. But I, I, th- I think we've got a good amount here. And so this is where I think the... The presence of mind is for us, and what really is going to drive in for renovation today and in our current stage is the element of haste. There's an urgency here, a large element of haste. It's almost like he's saying there's like a crisis. There's a crisis of unity happening. And indeed, in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council, it was a crisis. You, you, if that had not gone down like it did, there would be multiple different factions of Christianity from ground zero let alone what we look at today. So there's a sense of crisis. And if we're not about this idea of unity, then my question is, what are we about? It seems like unity in the church, and I know that we even are guilty of this, that unity is like a background thing. It's something that just kind of gets checked on. And when, when we start to feel a little bit of tension, maybe we preach on it and kind of push us all back to a kumbaya. It's not a background thing. And I think that's one of the big things for us, again, as a church. It's got to be an ever-present reality, and it's got to be a pursuit, a pursuit of unity. And my question is this. How are you eagerly working out peace? You see, if, you, if I ask the question, are your relationships at peace? I think most of you could say yes, right? Maybe you've got one that you've got to kind of do some reconciling on. But most of your relationships are at peace, right? And that's good. That, that fosters unity. But that's not the question. The question is, are you eagerly working it out? Are you seeking more peace? And I think the practical way for us to, to to walk away with today is this. How are you showing other members that you care for them? How are you showing other members that you care for them? That's pursuing peace. That's pursuing, that's walking in a manner worthy of showing others that you do not think better of yourself than them of being humble, of being gentle, of bearing with one another by seeking their good. Now Think about your home gathering. This is something that I, I've noticed. I've been able to visit all three groups recently now because I was there uh, this past week. Uh, it's not like epidemic and it's not something that I've asked the home gathering leaders to kind of address. It's something that I, I want to talk about here. And I'm guilty of this too, particularly when I'm not teaching. When you think about caring for each other in our home gatherings, one very practical way that I think would be helpful for us as a church is this, actively listening. I I think there's a a little bit of a concern that we don't actively listen to each other. Uh, And it plays itself out in different groups and different ways. Uh, In some, it may be that we're just kind of doing our own thing, and uh, if a question catches us, we'll we'll give an answer. Um, Or it's just other things, it's like, is Greg done yet? I want to say something, right? sorry. Um, (laughs) Sorry. That's not actively listening to Greg. That's saying, Greg's, I'm going to forget what I want to say, right? That's not actively listening. That's not showing care to Greg. Actively listening would be like this their answer's better than mine, and I'm going to engage with their answer. And we're going to develop that, and we're going to apply it to Scripture and test it. I care about what these people are saying. I care about how they're applying it to their lives and what's going on with them and the relationships that they see humility is needed, or the relationships where they see that someone's prideful. And we engage with each other. That's a very practical, easy way to show that we care about each other. It doesn't mean that you've got to talk all the time, every night at home gathering. You just have to engage with them. You guys don't have to talk to, to Matt, Brian, Robbie, or me at home gathering. Talk to each other. Engage with each other. That's active listening. It's a very practical way to show that we are unified together. Because your unity is not with Matt and myself. I know that we have a higher standard that we have to listen to, but I also know that you guys afford us a terrific amount of grace. That if we were to offend you, for the most part, you guys would let it go. And I thank you for that grace. But that's not going to cause you to leave the church. What will cause you to leave the church is other people in the church. And if you can't have unity with them, then the unity that you may have with the pastor is not going to last. Because we're not the body, you're the body. We're the body. We've got to be united together. And guys, with the structure that we have, the reason that we pursue the ministry vision that we have is because we think, and and we're set up for this, and I think for the most part we're good at this, we should be experts at practical care. If we're family members and servants, then we should be experts at practical care for one another, eagerly seeking out the good for others, even at cost or right to ourselves. even at cost or right to ourselves. There are people that have levied things against me that are dead wrong, like empirically. (laughs) Not even opinion. Empirically dead wrong. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to argue. God's got my back. There are other times that people have come at Matt myself. There's no empirical evidence. But God's not convicted us of sin. God's not convicted us of anything that we're doing wrong. And we don't have to defend ourselves. We speak truth, but we don't have to defend ourselves. And God vindicates us. He has and he will continue to. I trust him to. When it is something that we need to repent of, we repent. (laughs) We just trust God. We don't have to defend ourselves. You guys don't have to defend ourselves. You can defer your rights. And yeah, sometimes it may cost you. It will cost you. It's okay. You have the king's resources. You have a lot to give. The goal is obviously, I think, with this unity, the outworking of the theological reality that God is uniting all things in Jesus. When we look again back at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we told you at the beginning, that's the theme. Guess what? It's still the theme. This is the outworking of everything being united in Christ and you still may be wondering, I see that unity will happen. I, I see that he's removed this dividing wall. I, I see all these theological things that you're talking about. But still, why is it important? Why is it important that all things be united in Christ? I don't know that we've maybe done a good job of explaining that. I, I think it's clear in chapter 1, <laughs> above and before, it, but we haven't like laid it out. Why is it important? Because of God's glory. It says that right above and below, verses 9 and 10. It is for God's glory. He says it's for the Jew first to the glory of God and also to the Gentiles for the glory of God. (coughs) Unity is important because of the glory of God, to the praise of his glory. And so ultimately what I want you to see today is this oneness matters because God is one. Unity matters because God is united. Oneness matters because God is one. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over to John chapter 17 John chapter 17 is what we refer to as the high priestly prayer. I want you to look at verse 9. It says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, so that what? So that they may be one, even as we are one. Because the mind-blowing reality of the Trinity is not even just that God is three in one. It's that God is billions in one. We are invited into the nature of God. We are united with Christ. We're in him just as they are one. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, <coughs> excuse me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Verse 23 says that it is important for us to be one, so that the world may know that you sent me for the glory of God. The reason we have to be united is because of our mission, to bring glory to God as one church in the world. Paul Tripp says that your life is bigger than you ever imagined. You live in one moment of time, yet you stand hand in hand with Enoch, Noah, Joseph, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Matthew, Peter, Paul, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, and Jones. And generations of unknown believers who stand or understood their place in the kingdom and did their part in its work. Only as you keep this huge world in view will you be able to live and serve effectively in the small world where God has placed you. I'm going to read a prayer for us of confession. I want you to take this time as we continue in worship and, and take, have this prayer you will work through the questions. How am I pursuing eagerly unity, peace? If there are relationships that need to be restored today, do it. If there's peace that needs to happen today, do it. It is a crisis. We are at war with ourselves and with each other's kingdoms if we are not about the kingdom of God. Let's pray together as a band comes forward. <clears throat> Father, your word tells us that just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so does with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. <coughs> Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. triune God, you are one God in three persons, a diverse unity in whom there is neither division nor contention. You call us also to be one body made up of many different members with different gifts and abilities as well as different needs and failings. We confess that we often take pride in our own gifts and even look down on those who lack them while thinking little about our need for the gifts of others in the body. We form factions and cliques that promote and support our own interests, desperately trying to attract the favor of those whom we think are strong, while despising and shunning those whom we see as weak, unattractive, or broken. Father, forgive us. And Jesus, thank you for your willingness to allow your physical body to be shattered and broken in order to establish the unity of your spiritual body, the church. Thank you that in you we have a unity that transcends all earthly boundaries. And in you there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. Thank you for the particular love and care that you bestowed on the weakest and most ignored members of your community, especially the women, children, and outcasts. By your gracious attention, you gave honor to those who lacked it. And as the only mediator between us and the Father, you unite all your people yourself and holy spirit you are the one who gives each of us our various gifts and callings help us to see and appreciate your work and other christians honoring them more highly than ourselves remove our stony self-centered hearts and give us hearts of flesh that love our brothers and sisters in christ and value them just as they are Teach us to love them with all their weaknesses and sins as beloved children of our Heavenly Father and servants of the same Master. Bind us firmly together into one new people, united by Christ's work on the cross and your continuing work in each of our hearts. Amen.